reading from verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise, be seated, O Jerusalem, loose the bonds from your neck, and O captive daughter of Zion. All right. Isn't that amazing? Awake, awake, put on their strength, O Zion. How many of you know what it's like to be asleep and dreaming? The thing about dreaming is that you have not that much control over what takes place in your dream, right? And in the dream, very irrational, ridiculous things seem to be very rational and very realistic and very plausible, don't you think? Have you had those kinds of ridiculous dreams? You wake up in the morning and think, what the? And I actually believe that stuff. You're put into all kinds of, 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 of surrealist, surrealistic situations. They just flow into each other. And the stream of consciousness is not particularly rational, but yet it's compelling. Yeah, it's compelling. It's almost as if you're in a different dimension. Yeah, you're in a different dimension. In that dimension, it has its own logic. It has its own kind of uh, uh, evocative um, steps, logical steps. And they, one, one thought leads to another, and they're not logically cobbled together. They are actually ridiculous. And there's something about the dimension of that that it feels real. And so if people talk about their own reality, if their reality is a dream reality, then their reality is actually not real. It's of a different dimension. And when we live in a situation in which subject, subjectivism and my own reality as, as compared with your reality becomes just as valid, then you have, there's no, there's, you have no arbiter of truth. We don't have, that's not where I'm going. What I'm just saying is that there's a different dimension in that. Yeah? So sometimes I, I have these dreams. I have this dream that's been recurring for many years. And in this dream, I'm wanting to go to Marks and Spencers, which most of you don't know about. It's a, but, but, but Louisa and all will, will, will know. It's a particular store in England. It's not particularly special. It's just, it's just normal. It's just a, a regular store, but I'm always trying to get there. And in this dream, I'm always in the same place, and, and it's only a few steps away and I just can't get there. There will be always something that will come in the way and it will sort of stop me and I always end up somewhere else, diverted into some other place. And it's very, very real. The circumstances that prevent me from getting to Marks and Spencers um, are ridiculous, but they are very real. And it is almost as if during, because of the fact that I've dreamt this dream so many times, very, very, very many variations of it, I already know that I'm not going to end up there. I start the dream, and I'm not aware of the fact that I'm in a dream, but I'm aware of the fact that I'm not going to get there. And the dream dimension, the dream reality, is so real that I could actually be living in it uh, in such a compelling way, and my whole mindset is actually uh, adapted to it. 
Yeah? It's real enough in terms of my sensory perception, my own mind, my subconscious, but it is not actually real. It has elements that are drawn from a real experience. I have been to uh, Marks and Spencer's. I've been there many times before. Every time we go back to Malaysia, there is a Marks and Spencer's there in Malaysia. There are a few, and I always want to go there for, for the first time buy underwear and different things. It's, it's nothing compelling. It's not, the fashions are not anything special, but they're good quality. Anyway, I don't want to get on, onto that. So when Isaiah chapter 52 says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments. The prophet is basically saying, you have to break out of a dimension. You've got to break out of a, 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 a lived reality that is subjectively compelling. It presses upon you, but it is not the full reality. It may be lived and may be experienced by you, but its interpretation and its reality is not complete. In fact, it may be topsy-turvy. Yeah? So when he says awake, you, the, I, Isaiah is using a word, um, awake, awake. And, and I, I shared during the uh, daily prayer that this re- repetition of awake, awake, it's a Hebraism which has, means to violently wake yourself up. Yeah, awake, awake, depart, depart. You know, um, uh, when Abraham was called out of Ur, he says, get out, get out, you know? So there's this rep- repetitive thing, this re- repeating of a phrase or a, w- or a word, which has to do with a certain violent, um, conscious, self-conscious, intentional, whatever word you, want, you can use, to, to shake yourself out of that, out of that thing. And what God is saying uh, from this passage of Scripture is this. This is the time for you to put on your strength. Put on your strength, the strength that's already there. But if you're living in the wrong dimension, even though it's there, you may not be functioning in a dimension or in, a, in an angle, in a, in, a, in a way that is appropriate to the thing that is there. And so what God is basically saying to the nation of Israel at this point, on the, at the end of their exile, they were in Babylon, is this, is this, you've got to get out of it because my promises of redemp- redemption and re- restoration are about to come to pass. But for that to happen, it will not just drop on your lap. You have to change your, the dimension of your thought. And today I'd like to talk a little bit about that because I feel the Lord pressing that upon my mind. Because if, because if we do not understand that, we will be very disappointed at the end of 2024 when the promises of God do not actually come to pass. The coming to pass of God's promises are always predicated upon putting on strength, putting on courage. Right? God gave the, 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 Promised land to um, Joshua, he says, be strong and of good courage because tomorrow I'm going to do great things among, among you. Yeah? Be strong and good courage for I will bring you into the land to possess it. This is a promise. Right? In Isaiah chapter 35, the promise is always pre- preceded by putting on strength. It says, uh, it says um, 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 
be strong and take courage for the Lord will come and he will redeem you. The desert will blossom like a crocus yeah? and, uh, and, 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 and it will blossom like a rose. So be strong because it's not just going to flow into, into reality by autopilot. There's always a promise of God that's an invitation into something that God's doing. And God never does, does things in which He doesn't, it does not involve our own particular participation in it. But that particular participation in what God's doing is very, very crucial. If we do not participate in an appropriate way, we will wonder why those promises don't come to pass. And many Christians die very disillusioned because the things that they've been that have been prophesied or the things that have been spoken of in the Bible don't actually come to pass in their life. They are expecting the Word of God to, to validate itself, but no promise of God is, a, is just a prediction. It is an invitation into participation in a covenant relationship with God by which God's going to do some stuff with you. But this requires great change because what God is predicating, what He is, is talking about, it's impossible to happen. It is not only impossible circumstantially, it is impossible to happen by you or me. You can't do it. It's beyond you. The promises of God are not beyond you. Because if they are not be, if they are, if they are, sorry, the promises of God are beyond you. But if they are not beyond you, then they are not promises of God. You can just do it yourself. And the Christian church has come to a point where it can't tell the difference between things that we can do ourselves and things that only God does. In fact, we are so into ourselves that we have given ourselves the credit for a lot of things, wonderful things that God has done. The problem with the, that the, the prophet Hosea speaks to the children of Israel has to do with the fact that he had blessed them and he had adorned them with tremendous beauty. So much beauty that the nations around were attracted to them in a predatory way. And he says, and because you thought it was my own beauty that, that, that attracted my lovers, lo lovers and did not know that it was I, it was I who providentially blessed you, I will take those things away so that you will know who, whether it is you, you or me. And sometimes what God does as he, as he did during the exile, the 70 years of exile, is that he takes away the blessing and takes away the protection so that we will know the difference between us and God. And this is what we are going to talk a little bit about because when God begins to restore us this year to the promises that he may have given to us, or you and as each individual, individual family as well as individual we, we have to come out of something that we are so used to that it has infected and affected our minds. David Foster Wallace uh, gave the commencement speech at uh, Kenyon, Kenyon College, and he brought, drew attention to that. Some of you may, be, may, may know what that, that speech entails, right? He says, he gives this illustration, he says, there was two young fish that were fishing, swimming, in the, swimming in, the, in, the, in the ocean. And as they were swimming together, they were talking together, on the, from the opposite sides comes this older fish. 
And the older fish says, how's the water? And the younger fish says to the other fish, what's water? Because they're so used to it that they can't tell how insidious it is, right? And that's how sometimes that happens. The children of Israel were were in Babylonian captivity. And in Babylon, what had happened is that they had grown up so infected and so, so conflated, so mixed up with Babylonian thought that their religious thought, their Jewish Israelite, Israeli thought or Israelite thought was mixed up and, and, and thought through through the lens of Babylon. Does that make sense? We can think Christian thoughts through the lens of this, this, the world. And so what was happening in uh, Isaiah chapter 52 is that the prophet Isaiah is saying, is saying you've got to wake up from the dimension that you're in because you're in the dimension of Babylon. Even the Christian thoughts that you're thinking of, the, the religious thoughts, the thoughts of the, of, the, of, of the Torah, are thought through a Babylonian framework. And because of that, you are going to be able to, you're, you're going to be able to to not be, uh, not be successful in separating out God from Babylon, from God and Nebuchadnezzar. So, for example, the children of Israel would have grown up in Babylon with Babylonian myth, philosophy, ways of thinking that were in some ways similar to the law or the Torah and at the same time thinking Jewish thoughts as Babylonians. So there's, there's for example, uh, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, one of the interesting stories that you see is the story of Udna Fistin. Gilgamesh is on this quest to know how he can live forever because his, his, uh, his good friend Enkidu has just died and, he, and, the, and, the, and the, the, the feeling of that death has, has wounded him so much that he's on a quest to, to ask the question, how can I live forever? And he meets this person by the name of Unna Fistin and if you read, about, read the, 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 the epic of Gilgamesh, Udna Fistin looks exactly like Noah. In fact, many, many scholars think that Noah was based upon Udna Fistin. Yeah? And so you tend to look at the, and, and, and people would look at uh, the, the story of Noah from the point of view of the story of Udna Fistin, who was able to defy death. And so Gilgamesh is actually goes on this long track and he comes to, to Unna Fistin and he says, how can I live forever? And Unna Fistin tells him, you can't. It's very disappointing. He says, I'm, I'm the only one. You can't. <laughs> so Gilgamesh goes back very, very sad because there's no hope. Right? But when the, the scriptures are given to the nation of Israel, the scriptures change the story and says 
God used Noah to bring about redemption in spite of the fact that the whole world was flooded and came to an end, came to death. And the Noah story has to do with the fact that God can bring life out of death. Does that make sense? But if you look at it through the Babylonian eyes, there's no hope. Death is the end of it. So what was happening was this. When you read biblical stories, the biblical stories, they're all historical. Noah, I believe, believe existed. The story of Noah actually precedes the story of Unafisim. He lived before that. Hello? Yeah? It's true. It's historical. But at the same time, it tells something that is even deeper than the historical truth. And that is that there is life after death. That through, and, and, and First Peter talks about it, through the flood, we were all saved. The flood was to save us, not to kill us, but to save us. Amen? And it's very interesting when you read um, um, uh, Genesis, the, the story of creation. Genesis is, and that's why scholars get confused. Because scholars think there's such a, such a similarity between the Bible story and these Babylonian kind of myths. Must be that the Bible actually borrowed from the Babylonian myths. Actually, that's not true. What happens is that the Bible actually tells a story, and, and it's quite similar, except when it tells the story of creation, it tells the story in such a way that man is created last, not first. Not like the Babylonian myth. The Babylonian myth, man is created first, uh, first and not last. But in the Bible, man is created last because he has more precious, more glorious than animals. Does that make sense? It's almost as if God tells us the history, the real history of things, and then he tells us in such a way that it's so similar to the Babylonian myth that but it, he, there's a twist to it. And the twist is, to meant, is meant to share with us how God loves us and how precious we are to God. And so when we read Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah is saying, you've got to wake up out of ways in which the world has affected your Christian thought. The world has affected your Christian thought in such a way that the center of your religion is man, is yourself. And what you are trying to do in Babylon is to manipulate the gods so that if you're on the right side of the gods, you will be fine. But the Bible says it's about God, not about you. Does that make sense? It's about God, it's not about you. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of time to, to, to describe this because this is really important, because this is really central to us. Our religion has become so infected by the religion of the world, the Babylonian, so to speak, the, 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 the thought of the world, that we tend to use God for our own purposes, for our own well-being. And what God is saying in true worship, and we are singing about this, is that the Lord has to be the one. Not us. He's not to be manipulated for our own benefit. Because once you look at, the, at God and you look at the world, 
through the eyes of your own well-being on your own benefit. And God is somewhere as part of that constellation, a very powerful part of that constellation that, can, that you can use to get, get His help for your own self-centeredness. You will miss the whole story. You'll be like in a dream. You'll be upside down. Because what happens sometimes, and we are seeing the, out, the, the fallout of this even now, even in 2023, so much of the Christian religion is used as a self-serving thing. And we've lost worship. We use worship so that we'll feel better. We use worship as therapy. I've got to tell you, worship is therapeutic. It is. But that's not the whole point of, of worship. Does that make sense? And what God is basically saying through Isaiah chapter 52 has to do, has to do the fact that we need to, to, uh, to awake out of this dream. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there, is no, there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Now, if you turn with me to Genesis chapter 11, Genesis chapter 11, it's very interesting when you look at it, because Genesis chapter 11 is about the Tower of Babel. 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 And every time Babylon is mentioned in the Old Testament, it's the same word, Babel. Okay? It's the same word. So Genesis chapter 11 is a, is a commentary about the spirit of Babylon, the spirit of Babel. The Genesis story spoke to all Christians, all followers of God, but especially in answer to those who are in exile in Babylon. And what, he, what um, the writer of Genesis speaks about in chapter 11 has to do with how the spirit of Babylon, the phenomenon of Babylon, the principle of Babylon, came about, not only in the world, but in the eyes and minds of the, the Israelites that were in exile. Let's look at this. Verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Very different from the Israelite houses because the Israelite houses were made of cedars and planks, very beautiful. And uh, the writer of uh, Genesis chapter 11 is talking about, he's kind of making fun of the Mesopotamian uh, Babylonian houses. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Yeah, make, let's make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city on the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, 
And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over all the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. And that is the word that is used for Babylon all the time, right? Throughout the Old Testament. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The Bible is not just talking history. I believe it is. I believe this is historical. But it's also speaking what we call theology. It's trying to tell us something, something deeper there. And he's talking about the fact that there's this principle in Babylon in the world that Christians can easily imbibe for ourselves. And basically he says, let us make this this build, let's build something all the way to heaven in such a way that what we build is our own version, our own autonomous version of God. We make ourselves God so that we will have a name for ourselves. I'm very interested in the fact that it says, let us make a name for ourselves. Not just the fact that let's become famous. I don't think that's just what it says. It's saying we don't have a name. We don't have a meaning. We don't have a purpose. We don't have a divine purpose because there's no God. The gods of Ishtar, the, all, the, all the gods of Babylon are gods that are to be manipulated for our own good. We have to make a name for ourselves because there's no one from outside the universe that can give us a name and give us a purpose. Our purpose is our own. We have to create our own purpose. We have to create our own name. We have to create our own place in the universe. Why am I born? What's my purpose? I don't know. As long as you don't have a God, unless your God is not infinite, infinitely sovereign, you will be the God yourself. And you will have no name. Nietzsche said, and this, that makes the, the universe a very cold and very lonely place. Because you are the one in charge. And Babylon, the spirit of Babylon has to do with the fact that everything, including God, is manipulated for our own purposes. You cannot worship God like that. You will never get out of your dream. Does that make sense? When we worship, we worship, the heart of worship has to do with the fact that God is the center, not me. Yeah? It's not about me. It's not about God using God for myself. But Christianity today, especially in America, I have to say that, is manipulated around ourselves. And so God and the whole universe and all the spiritual uh, um, um, uh, paraphernalia, all the things of the Bible, are meant to make me more successful, more, more, more peaceful, more happy, more successful. And what, what God is saying is this, when you have man as the, as the center of things, you can never be anything but upside down. You have to get out of that dimension in which God is the one. And so what, what happens is that God begins to deal with us and bring us to an end of ourselves. Or else we and God are just completely confused and conflated. We can't tell the difference between God and us. Are we tracking? Is that okay? All right. I, I feel this. Please, uh, please be patient. Okay, Just be patient with me because uh, we're going somewhere with this. Right? 
The desperation that comes when you are in charge of your own life is that you have no idea what your name is. You create your name from your own ethnicity, from your own history, from your own expertise, from your own education, from your own friends, and you're constantly looking to someone to give you a name. Give me a name. Give me a name. Who am I? Who am I? What is the purpose of my life? At the end of, and end of most people's lives, um, they don't know whether their life is of any meaning or not. And so, um, in Genesis chapter, chapter 11, the, 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 the desperate cry is to make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth, verse 4. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower and which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And what was happening is that in this society of Babylon, everything got beginning to be reduced to one thing. Everybody spoke the same thing, thought the same thing, connived the same thing, had the same, same kind of redux, reduced and reductionistic moral structures. Everything becomes one. And what God is saying is this, when that, that comes to a point where everybody has the same reduced morals, ethics, values, perspectives in life, then everything is destroyed. And so, because of that, I, I, I believe that Isaiah chapter 52 is really important for us because what, what God wants to do is to set us free from our own Godhead. Um, Ray Kurzweil the director of engineering in Google, was asked, do you believe there is a God? And his answer is this, we're almost there. We've almost made him. Yeah? Elise Bohan, the Oxford scholar, in one of the largest uh, um, um, conferences on AI, Elise Bohan is remember that name because she's she's brilliant, but at the same time she's she's part of that AI gang. She was presenting and talking about the fact that we are coming to a point where we can create a human mind, a collective mind in the universe. And one of the one of the Oxford professors came up to her and whispered, You know, you're making God. And she said, I know. I know. So that's Babylon. But we as Christians, even in our ministry and our way in which we live our life with respect to God, can find ourselves actually in the same spirit as well of Babylon, by which we actually are living for ourselves and hoping that God will give us the things that we need. Now, I believe, that, I believe in this. I believe God cares for us more than we can care for ourselves. He cares for our sickness. He cares for our financial issues. He cares for our, our emotional health. He cares for us, our mental health. He cares for us in a total way, in a way that, in a way that we cannot construct for ourselves. We don't even know ourselves. We don't even know all the things that we need care for, but He knows. He knows the end from the beginning. He encompasses us. 
He knows us. He knew us even before we were formed in our mother's womb. That's the kind of God that we have. You either take care of yourself and you become lonely in this universe or you give yourself to God. And today in doing worship, what the Lord was speaking to us is this. We need our minds changed. We need to get out of it. We, ha- we need to be about God. Unless you are about God, then what will happen is that you can't help it. You, every interaction you have with God is curved back into yourself. God for me. God for me. You know, it becomes man-centered. And so, um, coming back to Isaiah chapter 52, the Lord begins to speak to the, to the children of Israel through that. Yeah. Awake, awake. We're going back to verse 1. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments. O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Isn't that great? God says, put on your strength. Put on your beautiful garments. Yeah? Put on your beautiful garments. It's very interesting, you know, when God says, put on your beautiful garments. Because he's talking about the garments of the priest. Right? Take on who you are living for as a priest. The priest was supposed to be able to hear from God and be able to minister the godness of God, the, un, the, the infinite resources of God to human beings, unlimited needs. Yeah? Put on their beautiful garments. By humankind, living the Christian way in a Babylonian style, can't help putting on the garments that are appropriate to themselves only, that are for themselves. It's amazing the ludicrousness by which we dress ourselves. We dress ourselves in a way that is for ourselves. But what God is saying is about a different kind of dressing. Okay? He's saying, dress yourself in garments that are appropriate to God. The garments are appropriate to God. You come to church, you dress in garments that are appropriate to God. Most people say, I'm going to dress in garments that are appropriate to myself. They, are, they express myself first. They're my self-expression. All that's okay, it's fine, don't worry. No sin. But when God is speaking to, to Isaiah, He's saying, dress yourself in a manner that's appropriate to God. Your style is not that important. Your self-expression is not the main game. How your hair looks, how your face looks, how your shoes look, it's not the most important thing. When you come before my, my throne, you are not the important one. You need to be set free from yourself. You need to, you, you need to, to, to dress in a way that's appropriate to me. But what's happened is this, through the Babylonian eyes, what we do is this, we believe that Jesus set us free so that I can be myself. It's true, actually. But the center of the game is ourselves. But when God sets us free, He sets us free to be appropriate to. So that's why Romans says, whether you eat or you drink or you live, you live unto God. You see the difference? 
And what God was basically saying to the children of, children of Israel is this. Put on, if you put it in New Testament time, uh, language, Colossians 3, put on Christ. Put on Christ. Not put on things that would affirm and buttress your own self-identity. Because all that trying to find a name for yourself will not get you anywhere will not get you anywhere. We are all looking for our own originality, but end up looking like everybody else. Isn't it? We have the freedom. And where does the freedom get? Our freedom gets, gets us into our own boring selves. But what God has for us is something that is of Him. Amen? And, and, and so Isaiah talks about this in a way that clarifies it a little bit more. It says, Shake yourself, verse 2, from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Because what Isaiah is basically saying is this. You are actually, you're actually bound. You're in prison. Your freedom is a prison. Your autonomy is your prison. Autonomy mean, means what, just doing what I like. God did not set us free so that we could do whatever we like. He set us free so that we can do great things, things that honor Him, things that bring glory to Him. Yeah? He wants to bring us into the glory realm, not to our own self-actualization. All right. And so what God begins to do is this. He begins to say, in order for us to experience the promises of God, there must be something that happens. You have to put on strength. Put on your beautiful garments. Put on the strength. Yeah? It's not just going to come on your lap. It's not going to drop on your lap. But you have to put on your, your strength and take off these bondages. Loose the bonds from yourself. Loose your bondage to your own self-will. Okay? Amen? You have to set yourself free. And this is where it gets really interesting. Because Isaiah chapter 52 verse 1 says, when he says, put on your strength, put on your beautiful garments, take off the, and then verse 2, shake yourself from the dust. Isaiah is basically saying to the children of Israel, you need to be set free from yourself. And what will happen is this, you will begin to experience the difference between what's from God and what's from yourself. Put on the strength of God, not your own strength. Put on the strength that is not of you. And you come to a point in which, just like the children of Israel, they're brought to an end of themselves. They're brought to the gap. They're brought to the place where there is Tremendous anxiety and fear because they've run out of their own motivation, their own, their own abilities, their own fire, their own ego strength. And this can be seen even more clearly when we look at first, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 1 
will bring us to what the real substance of our life is, is about. Okay? Let's have a look at this. I'm going to read to you um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and look at the watch and make sure the time is okay. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So the substance of our ministry, what's supposed to come out of us that's go forth like brightness, is comfort. Okay? It is the comfort of God. For we, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So as we suffer Christ's sufferings, we experience the comfort of Christ in, the, in that place where we are suffering. Okay? If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Share in our sufferings, you share in our comfort. And what he's saying is this. What we experience when we are suffering and then experience the supernatural comfort of God is for you as well. So that what we, the substance, the currency, the substance that we actually minister out is something that's the comfort of God. Okay? The comfort of God. Right? For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, okay, beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God, so that our reliance is not upon ourselves because we are actually dying, but to rely upon God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a de deadly peril and He will deliver us. And on Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. See how sure He is? See what the comfort has done. The comfort has made Him very sure about this. It's so solid. Okay? The comfort that uh, Paul is talking about must not be misunderstood. Okay? We use the word comfort. Then we say, you know, when you've lost your... Perhaps your pet has died, yeah? And you are comforted. That kind of comfort is like, it's all right. It doesn't do that much. It doesn't make you feel different. It mitigates your feeling, but it, it sort of identifies with them. That's not what the Bible means by comfort. The word for comfort is drawn from Nahim in the Old Testament, which has to do with the breath of God. It's the breath of the Holy Spirit. The word, the, the name Nehemiah, Nehemiah, is actually from the word God comforts. The Spirit comforts, right? So the breath of God is not just something that mitigates things or just makes it, ah, oh, sorry, oh, poor thing. The comfort of God has to do with the power of God, the love of God, the substance of God that is well able to replace the loss with something even greater. It is that that we minister. If you don't minister that, you will only come minister, be ministering yourself. 
which is, I'm sorry, you're great, but not enough. It's not enough. People are constantly trying to give them the answer, themselves as the answer. It's not enough. The comfort that is being, the, the, the comfort that Paul is ministering, he's saying, you, Corinthian church, you too can, can experience it. When you come to the gap, and there's anxiety and fear because of the fact that there's so much you can do, and after that, it all falls short. And that sentence of death is over you, and you can't get over to the other side. For all your powers and all your resources, you come to this place and you can't go any further. There's nothing. You're dead. Does that make sense? You're dead. And because of that, you cannot cross over to life unless you experience something in the middle. Now, many of us will experience anxieties, uncertainties, and un, uh, unassured things this coming year. We, are, we get sick, we lose things, we lose relationships, we, our relationships are threatened, all kinds of things are threatened. And we come to this place in which we experience the affliction of just not having enough, not, not, not having enough resources. It just isn't enough. Now, what happens is this. Paul says, God, is, God comforts us and gives us that comfort in the middle, in this in middle place. Before things are resolved, before the prayers are answered, He gives us this comfort, the, the breathing on of God. And the breathing of God is not just a breath, it's just an ephemeral thing. It is the substance of God. Amen? The thing about it is that in your, 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 your uncertainty and, your, uh, and, and, uh, and, and the anxiety of it, God is wanting to put something that is more solid than the answer to your prayer. He wants to put the solid, hardened breath of God into you and me so that what you will minister will be so powerful that it will be breaking the powers of the devil out there. Empathy is not enough. Empathy is not enough. It's the comfort of God that is ministered to. The suffering of God is not what you minister. Your suffering is not what you minister. The church has tended to think, ah, I'm broken, so I'm going to minister that brokenness. That's not what you minister. It's the comfort that you minister. Brokenness is the occasion for experiencing God's comfort. And there's a way in which church, our society, can, can, can draw attention to the fact that we have suffered, we are oppressed, we are, we are we're going through, through, through all kinds of lived experiences that make us broken. And that is the thing that we can minister. No, that's not the, not the thing that God ministers. The thing that's ministered is the comfort that comes from that. Now, suffering is necessary. But suffering is not the authority that you have. Suffering is not the ministry that you do. Suffering is the occasion for us to come to a place where our tendency to think it's God and us all together, it's all mixed up, begins to separate. And God begins to show Himself holy. You know what's holy? Holy means separate. When, he say, when God says He's holy, He doesn't mean He's ethically very good. He means He's separate from us. He's separate from our goodness. 
Put on the holy garments. Put on holiness. It means put on separateness so that you don't confuse Babylon, the flesh, with God. Amen? This year, what God is saying is this, I'm going to do tremendous things in your life, but I'm going to take it when you put on strength. When you put on the strength of God's comfort upon your life, because only that will do it. Suffering will not give you points or, 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 or tickets to blessing. Suffering does not do that. It doesn't give you authority. It doesn't give you a special pass or a special in with things. It doesn't give you special sympathy with God. It does not. God's heart breathes and yearns for you in your suffering and my suffering. In those places of anxiety and the things in which we are going through real suffering. But His promise is this. When you call out to me, I will answer you and I will breathe upon you. And I will replace your suffering with something that's even more powerful, more joyful than ever. If the church does not have that, you will only minister yourself. And that is why the church is looking to become more ludicrously dressed up. More cool, more like the world. And it cannot even do as good a job as the world. The church is pathetic because it follows the world. So when God says, put on your beautiful garments, put on your strength, put on your beautiful garments, He's saying, you know what? In Christ, I've given you all things. You can hear from Him. Because the word of the Lord is near, it's there. It's nigh you. It's not far away. You just wait for it and just need to be able to recognize it. When you come to this place in which you despair of life itself and there's no, no human way of jumping, jumping across the anxiety, you come to Him and you put on strength. How do you put on strength? Isaiah 40 says, you wait upon Him. You wait upon Him. And if that strength means enough to you, you will wait until it comes. It's very simple. To say, if you want to gain strength, you just pray in, the, pray in tongues, pray in the Spirit. And I realize most people don't even believe that. So I'm given up on that one. I believe praying in the Spirit is important. That's what I do. But it's not a mechanical thing. When, when, when Isaiah chapter 40 says, wait upon the Lord, draw close to Him. What he's saying is that not just pray in tongues. He says, bring your heart towards Him so that he's, there is no other option except Him. He'll point you to ways in which options come up, but He will have to do it. Amen? He will be the one, but you come to Him, and you may not know how to connect with Him, you just wait. You just wait. And after you finish waiting, and nothing happens, you go off to do your work, come back again, you continue waiting. You know snakes and ladders? What do you, what do you call? I think in America you call them shoots and ladders, right? The proper name, no, no, not the proper name. <laughs> I grew up saying snakes and ladders. You keep going. You count six, and then you get another six, and then you keep going. It's the same thing with waiting for God. If you have waited and nothing happened, you keep waiting. You have no place to go. You have nothing else to do. 
You've got to do your, all, your, all the stuff you've got to do. But what happens is, God is building up the strength that you have. He says, put on your strength. Put on your beautiful garments. Isn't that amazing? That all of us has a ministry here in BCF. You have a ministry in the land. You have a ministry. You have to wait on it. One by one, a button comes on. <laughs> Underwear comes on. A shirt, a skirt, a shoe, a stocking. Here a little, there a little, line upon line. And after a while, it begins to make sense. At first, it doesn't make sense. I've got one sock here, a left sock, and a, and a right glove. What is that? But actually, as you're waiting upon God, the, the picture begins to, to unfold, and it begins to be a comfort. Not an emotional thing. It's something that's real. It is that that we minister. The church ministers itself. It doesn't minister God. And this is the year in which we are going to see God do something. It's going to happen. I can make you the most outlandish promises of God because it's in God's hands. But it may not happen because we can still be trying to live the Christian life in our own natural man. Now the great thing about it is, is when God says, put on your strength, He says, He tells us, it looks forward to the new covenant where when Christ came, He died on the cross for us. And when He died on the cross, you died with Him. Your self-will, the power of sin, the power of addiction, died with Him. He crucified it. He crucified it right there. All the things that you cannot help sinning in, He crucified it so that even though it's there, its power has been broken. If He did not crucify it on the cross, you would not have the ability to get out of that chain, out of that prison. But when, when you become a Christian, the main thing about being a Christian is not that you just suddenly took on this, this, these ethical values or or, or Christian principles. You became a new person, but more importantly, you died. That is why it cannot be about you. That's why it cannot be about us doing our ministry and, and, and self-fulfilling ourselves. It has to be out go- about God. And there, what Christ has done is this. He did something that we could never do for ourselves. He crucified us. You cannot crucify yourself. I was telling you, if you're on the cross, you can't crucify yourself. Right? It's only when Christ administers His death towards you. That's what the New Testament is all about. The New Testament has to do with the fact that when we minister, we don't minister our natural ability. Too much of evangelical Christianity has to do with ministering our gifts, our talents. I was made for this job. I was made for that job. Maybe... But in Christ, what, there's something that's more important, and that is that He put to death your old person. So much so that when you become a Christian, you become a new person in Him, whether you believe it or not. You may not feel it, but you're still a new person. And that is why it says, put on your strength, your strength. The strength that is in you now. It's there. You don't have to be trained to have to, for it. You have it. It is there. God did it for you. He paid the, the highest price that ever could be. It's yours. Now you have to wake up. And don't, give, don't live by Babylon. Amen? Amen. I, uh, I found that when I was growing up, I had a speech impediment. And the speech impediment was so terrible 
that I would be very, very embarrassed when I was, when I would talk to any number of people above three. When I have to speak to four people, my face would just go so red. It was like, and I would stutter. I would stutter in such a way that my breathing, the timing of my breathing would be so off that everybody could see how nervous I was when I was talking. I still have it, have it sometimes. So I would speak and I would speak in less than three words. I would go, Boo, Boo. and it was embarrassing because of that. And then God called me into full-time ministry and my pastor said, okay, you have to share at this, in, this, in this meeting. It killed me. I was so embarrassed by it. But I obeyed him. And I came to a point where I could feel the gap between all my experience and what I was supposed to get through to do. And I couldn't cross it. I just couldn't cross it. I agonized over it for days and days and days. I practiced. And so I would practice in front of the mirror. And every time I would begin, I'd go, Goo, Goo. I just couldn't stop it. The day came for me to actually share. I won't say preach, I just share. And I did my last practice again, and the same thing happened. And then I felt a little something inside me say, from 1 Corinthians, all speech and knowledge has been given to you already. I tried to believe it, but I could not. And I came to an end of my belief. Even my faith that this would happen came to an end. Have you experienced that? Many people think you've got to believe enough. The natural man cannot believe enough. You just can't. You believe until you come to the point of your doubt, and then the whole doubt floods you. Have you experienced that? You believe and believe and believe and believe, and you reach the end of your belief. And when you reach the end of your belief, doubt just floods in, and you're just left with just doubt. That was happening with me. So what happens is this. Paul says, you despair even of life itself. There's nothing there for you. There's no hope. And then you stop. You relax and you realize there's no belief left. I have no faith. And that's what happened to me. I had no faith. And then a verse came to me. Have the faith of God. Because your faith is not enough. So I had to wait. I said, God, I need your faith. I don't have enough faith. And I waited. Waiting is a very crazy thing. You cannot do anything about it. You cannot help the waiting. The waiting is just waiting. It's just absolute numbness. Right? Just so stupid. You just wait. So I just waited. Unless God came, there's nothing, there's no, no help at all for me. And then, at a certain point, I'll never forget that because I always look out for that. A little wind of faith came. And I said, I couldn't explain it. I think I can believe that God will help me. It came out of nowhere. 
but it did come. And since then, I've recognized how it feels. Very gentle. Very gentle. It lifts me up a bit. And so I came out of that place with that. And I found that when I waited upon it more, it took over more and more. It took over more and more. It wasn't just a little particle. The particle grew and grew and grew. So I did that sharing. I still stammered and I stuttered. But the response to the preaching or the sharing was so great that several people became full-time ministers out of that. It's my first preaching, my first preaching ever. The warts and all were there, still there. Maybe a little bit reduced. But what it did was that it helped me to think, I'm not going for perfection when I speak. Today, I'm still like that. When people want to edit my, 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 my sermons on YouTube and all that, they have a lot of work to do. <laughs> I, I used to listen to my sermons after I did. I stopped doing that. It just makes me feel so discouraged. But I've, it's not about me anymore. Right? I'm putting on my beautiful garments appropriate to Him, not appropriate to me. It's not about me. I don't try to find what's my style, what's my, my, own, my, my particular uniqueness. No, I don't care about that. That gets in the way. It's towards God. Amen? And what God has brought us to is this. You'll come to this place where you're in the gap and God's going to fill up the gap with something more solid than even an answered prayer. Amen? Let us pray. That's why in Isaiah chapter 52 it says, Depart, depart. Go forth from, that, that, from Babylon. Go far from there. You who bear the vessels of the Lord. You will not go as a fugitive, but the Lord will go before you. This year, the beginning of this year, God calls us out of sleep, awake, awake. I wonder whether we can call the worship team, whoever's here, to sing that song, As the Deer Pants After the Water Brook. Can we do that? Get ready, okay? Get ready. Set our heart towards God, desiring Him. You need, you and I need God more than we need His answers. If we are only focused on His answers, we will take His answers and put it back into Babylon and make it another selfish thing. But let's worship the Lord. Worship the Lord for Himself, not for any effect it can have on our lives. But I want to invite us at the beginning of this year to dedicate our lives to God and say, God, I want to live for you. Not use you as my assistant. I'm not in partnership with you. You're, you are the senior pastor, partner. I'm not even a partner. We're not equal. I don't set the agenda. You set the agenda, Lord. I'm here at your service. 
I'm here at your behest. I long to worship you. Not for the things you can give me, or the good life, or the best life, or whatever life that is, but for you.